This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 10. Fourth of July at Sea. Mediterranean Sunset. The Oracle is delivered of an opinion. Celebration ceremonies. The Captain's Speech. France in sight. The Ignorant Native. In Marseilles. Another blunder. Lost in the great city. Found again. A Frenchy scene. We passed the Fourth of July on board the Quaker City in mid-ocean. It was in all respects a characteristic Mediterranean day, faultlessly beautiful. A cloudless sky, a refreshing summer wind, a radiant sunshine that glinted cheerily from dancing wavelets instead of crested mountains of water, a sea beneath us that was so wonderfully blue, so richly brilliantly blue, that it overcame the dullest sensibilities with the spell of its fascination. They even have fine sunsets on the Mediterranean, a thing that is certainly rare in most quarters of the globe. The evening was sailed away from Gibraltar, that hard-featured rock was swimming in a creamy mist so rich, so soft, so enchantingly vague and dreamy, that even the oracle, that serene, that inspired, that overpowering humbug, scorned the dinner-gong and tarried to worship. He said, "'Well, that's gorgeous, ain't it? They don't have none of them things in our parts, do they?' I consider that them effects is on account of the superior refragibility, as you may say, of the sun's dynamic combination with the lymphatic forces of the perihelion of Jupiter. What should you think? Oh, go to bed. Dan said that, and went away. Oh, yes, it's all very well to say go to bed when a man makes an argument which another man can't answer. Dan don't never stand any chance in an argument with me, and he knows it, too. What should you say, Jack? Now, doctor, don't you come bothering round me with that dictionary bosh. I don't do you any harm, do I? Then you let me alone. He's gone, too. Well, them fellows have all tracked the old oracle, as they say, but the old man's most too many for em. Maybe the poet Lariat ain't satisfied with them deductions. The poet replied with a barbarous rhyme, and went below. Peers that he can't qualify neither. Well, I didn't expect nothing out of him. I never see one of them poets yet that knowed anything. He'll go down now and grind out about four reams of the awfulest slush about that old rock and give it to a consul or a pilot or a nigger, or anybody he comes across first which he can impose on. Pity, but somebody'd take that poor old lunatic and dig all that poetry rubbish out of him. Why can't a man put his intellect onto things that's some value? Gibbons and Hippocrates and Sarcophagus, and all of them ancient philosophers was down on poets. Doctor, I said, you are going to invent authorities now, and I'll leave you too. I always enjoy your conversation, notwithstanding the luxuriance of your syllables, when the philosophy you offer rests on our own responsibility. But when you begin to soar, when you begin to support it with the evidence of authorities who are the creations of your own fancy, I lose confidence. That was the way to flatter the doctor. He considered it a sort of acknowledgment on my part of a fear to argue with him. He was always persecuting the passengers with abstruse propositions framed in language that no man could understand, and they endured the exquisite torture a minute or two and then abandoned the field. A triumph like this, over half a dozen antagonists, was sufficient for one day. 
From that time forward he would patrol the decks beaming blandly upon all comers, and so tranquilly, blissfully happy. But I digress. The thunder of our two brave cannon announced the Fourth of July at daylight to all who were awake, but many of us got our information at a later hour from the almanac. All the flags were sent aloft except half a dozen that were needed to decorate portions of the ship below, and in a short time the vessel assumed a holiday appearance. During the morning meetings were held, and all manner of committees set to work on the celebration ceremonies. In the afternoon the ship's company assembled aft, on deck, under the awnings. The flute, the asthmatic melodeon, and the consumptive clarinet crippled the star-spangled banner, the choir chased it to cover, and George came in with a peculiarly lacerating screech on the final note, and slaughtered it. Nobody mourned. We carried out the corpse on three cheers—that joke was not intentional, and I do not endorse it—and then the President, throned behind a cable locker with a national flag spread over it, announced the reader, who rose up and read that same old Declaration of Independence which we have all listened to so often without paying any attention to what it said. And after that the President piped the orator of the day to quarters, and he made that same old speech about our national greatness which we so religiously believe and so fervently applaud. Now came the choir into court again with the complaining instruments, and assaulted Hail Columbia, and when victory hung wavering in the scale, George returned with his dreadful wild-goose stop turned on, and the choir won, of course. A minister pronounced the benediction and the patriotic little gathering disbanded. The Fourth of July was safe, as far as the Mediterranean was concerned. At dinner in the evening a well-written original poem was recited with spirit by one of the ship's captains, and thirteen regular toasts were washed down with several baskets of champagne. The speeches were bad, execrable almost without exception, in fact without any exception but one. Captain Duncan made a good speech. He made the only good speech of the evening. He said, Ladies and gentlemen, may we all live to a green old age and be prosperous and happy. Stuart, bring up another basket of champagne. It was regarded as a very able effort. The festivities, so to speak, closed with another of those miraculous balls on the promenade deck. We were not used to dancing on an even keel, though, and it was only a questionable success. But take it all together, it was a bright, cheerful, pleasant fourth. Toward nightfall the next evening we steamed into the great artificial harbor of this noble city of Marseilles, and saw the dying sunlight gild its clustering spires and ramparts, and flood its leagues of environing verdure with a mellow radiance that touched with an added charm the white villas that flecked the landscape far and near. Copyright secured according to law. There were no stages out, and we could not get on the pier from the ship. It was annoying. We were full of enthusiasm. We wanted to see France. Just at nightfall our party of three contracted with a waterman for the privilege of using his boat as a bridge. Its stern was at our companion ladder, and its bow touched the pier. We got in, and the fellow backed out into the harbor. I told him in French that all we wanted was to walk over his thwarps and step ashore and asked him what he went away out there for. He said he could not understand me. I repeated. Still he could not understand. He appeared to be very ignorant of French. The doctor tried him, but he could not understand the doctor. 
I asked this boatman to explain his conduct, which he did, and then I couldn't understand him. Dan said, "'Oh, go to the pier, you old fool! That's where we want to go!' We reasoned calmly with Dan that it was useless to speak to this foreigner in English, that he had better let us conduct this business in the French language and not let the stranger see how uncultivated he was. "'Well, go on, go on,' he said. "'Don't mind me. I don't wish to interfere. Only if you go on telling him in your kind of French he never will find out where we want to go. That is what I think about it.' We rebuked him severely for this remark, and said we never knew an ignorant person yet, but was prejudiced. The Frenchman spoke again, and the doctor said, "'There now, Dan. He says he is going to aller to the douane. Means he is going to the hotel. Oh, certainly we don't know the French language.' This was a crusher, as Jack would say. It silenced further criticism from the disaffected member. We coasted past the sharp bows of a navy of great steamships, and stopped at last at a government building on a stone pier. It was easy to remember then that the douane was the custom-house and not the hotel. We did not mention it, however. With winning French politeness the officers merely opened and closed our satchels, declined to examine our passports, and sent us on our way. We stopped at the first café we came to, and entered. An old woman seated us at a table and waited for orders, and doctor said, "'Avez-vous du vin?' The dame looked perplexed. The doctor said again, with elaborate distinction of articulation, "'Avez-vous du vin?' The dame looked more perplexed than before. I said, "'Doctor, there is a flaw in your pronunciation somewhere. Let me try her.' "'Madame, avez-vous du vin?' "'It isn't any use, doctor. Take the witness.' Madame, avez-vous du vin, du fromage, pain, pickled pig's feet, beurre, des oeufs, du boeuf, horseradish, sauerkraut, hog and hominy, anything, anything in the world that can stay a Christian stomach? She said, Bless you, why didn't you speak English before? I don't know anything about your plagued French. The humiliating taunts of the disaffected member spoiled the supper and we dispatched it in an angry silence and got away as soon as we could. Here we were in beautiful France, in a vast stone house of quaint architecture, surrounded by all manner of curiously worded French signs, stared at by strangely habited bearded French people, everything gradually and surely forcing upon us the coveted consciousness that at last, and beyond all question, we were in beautiful France, and absorbing its nature to the forgetfulness of everything else, and coming to feel the happy romance of the thing in all its enchanting delightfulness, and to think of this skinny veteran intruding with her vile English at such a moment to blow the fair vision to the winds. It was exasperating. We set out to find the centre of the city, inquiring the direction every now and then. We never did succeed in making anybody understand just exactly what we wanted, and neither did we ever succeed in comprehending just exactly what they said in reply. But then they always pointed—they always did that—and we bowed politely and said, Merci, monsieur. And so it was a blighting triumph over the disaffected member, anyway. He was restive under these victories, and often said, What did the pirates say? Why, he told us which way to go to find the Grand Casino. Yes, but what did he say? Oh, it don't matter what he said. We understood him. These are educated people, not like that absurd boatman. 
Well, I wish they were educated enough to tell a man a direction that goes somewhere, for we've been going around in a circle for an hour. I've passed this same old drugstore seven times. We said it was a low, disreputable falsehood, but we knew it was not. It was plain that it would not do to pass that drugstore again, though we might go on asking directions, but we must cease from following finger-pointings if we hoped to check the suspicions of the disaffected member. A long walk through smooth, asphaltum-paved streets, bordered by blocks of vast new mercantile houses of cream-colored stone, every house and every block precisely like all the other houses and all the other blocks for a mile, and all brilliantly lighted, brought us at last to the principal thoroughfare. On every hand were bright colors, flashing constellations of gas-burners, gaily dressed men and women thronging the sidewalks. Hurry, life, activity, cheerfulness, conversation and laughter everywhere. We found the Grand Hôtel du Louvre et de la Paix, and wrote down who we were, where we were born, what our occupations were, the place we came from last, whether we were married or single, how we liked it, how old we were, where we were bound for, and when we expected to get there, and a great deal of information of similar importance, all for the benefit of the landlord and the secret police. We hired a guide, and began the business of sightseeing immediately. That first night on French soil was a stirring one. I cannot think of half the places we went to, or what we particularly saw. We had no disposition to examine carefully into anything at all. We only wanted to glance and go, to move and keep moving. The spirit of the country was upon us. We sat down, finally, at a late hour, in the great casino, and called for unstinted champagne. It is so easy to be bloated aristocrats where it costs nothing of consequence. There were about five hundred people in that dazzling place, I suppose. Though the walls being papered entirely with mirrors, so to speak, one could not really tell, but that there were a hundred thousand. Young, daintily dressed exquisites, and young, stylishly dressed women, and also old gentlemen and old ladies, sat in couples and groups about innumerable marble-topped tables, and ate fancy suppers, drank wine, and kept up a chattering din of conversation that was dazing to the senses. There was a stage at the far end, and a large orchestra, and every now and then actors and actresses in preposterous comic dresses came out and sang the most extravagantly funny songs, to judge by their absurd actions. But that audience merely suspended its chatter, stared cynically, and never once smiled, never once applauded. I had always thought that Frenchmen were ready to laugh at anything. End of chapter 10 Chapter 11 Getting used to it No soap Bill of fare table d'hôte An American sir A curious discovery The pilgrim bird Strange companionship A grave of the living A long captivity some of Dumas' heroes, Dungeon of the Famous Iron Mask. We were getting foreignized rapidly, and with facility. We were getting reconciled to halls and bedchambers, with unhomelike stone floors and no carpets, floors that ring to the tread of one's heels with a sharpness that is death to sentimental musing. We are getting used to tidy, noiseless waiters, who glide hither and thither, and hover about your back and your elbows like butterflies, quick to comprehend orders, quick to fill them, thankful for a gratuity without regard to the amount, and always polite, never otherwise than polite. That is the strangest curiosity yet, a really polite hotel waiter who isn't an idiot. 
we are getting used to driving right into the central court of the hotel, in the midst of a fragrant circle of vines and flowers, and in the midst also of parties of gentlemen sitting quietly reading the paper and smoking. We are getting used to ice frozen by artificial process in ordinary bottles, the only kind of ice they have here. We are getting used to all these things, but we are not getting used to carrying our own soap. We are sufficiently civilized to carry our own combs and toothbrushes, but this thing of having to ring for soap every time we wash is new to us and not pleasant at all. We think of it just after we get our heads and faces thoroughly wet, or just when we think we have been in the bathtub long enough, and then, of course, an annoying delay follows. These Marseillaise make Marseillaise hymns, and Marseillaise vests, and Marseillaise soap for all the world, but they never sing their hymns, or wear their vests, or wash with their soap themselves. We have learned to go through the lingering routine of the table d'hôte with patience, with serenity, with satisfaction. We take soup, then wait a few minutes for the fish, a few minutes more and the plates are changed, and the roast beef comes. Another change and we take peas. Change again and take lentils. Change and take snail patties, I prefer grasshoppers. Change and take roast chicken and salad, then strawberry pie and ice cream, then green figs, pears, oranges, green almonds, etc. Finally, coffee. Wine with every course, of course, being in France. With such a cargo on board, digestion is a slow process, and we must sit long in the cool chambers and smoke, and read French newspapers, which have a strange fashion of telling a perfectly straight story till you get to the nub of it, and then a word drops in that no man can translate, and that story is ruined. An embankment fell on some Frenchmen yesterday, and the papers are full of it today, but whether those sufferers were killed, or crippled, or bruised, or only scared, is more than I can possibly make out, and yet I would just give anything to know. We were troubled a little at dinner today by the conduct of an American, who talked very loudly and coarsely, and laughed boisterously where all others were so quiet and well-behaved. He ordered wine with a royal flourish, and said, I never dine without wine, sir, which was a pitiful falsehood, and looked around upon the company to bask in the admiration he expected to find in their faces. All these airs in a land where they would as soon expect to leave the soup out of the bill of fare as the wine, in a land where wine is nearly as common among all ranks as water, this fellow said, I am a free-born sovereign, sir, an American, sir, and I want everybody to know it. He did not mention that he was a lineal descendant of Balaam's ass, but everybody knew that without his telling it. We have driven in the Prado, that superb avenue bordered with patrician mansions and noble shade-trees, and have visited the Chateau Borly and its curious museum. They showed us a miniature cemetery there, a copy of the first graveyard that was ever in Marseilles, no doubt. The delicate little skeletons were lying in broken vaults, and had their household gods and kitchen utensils with them. The original of this cemetery was dug up in the principal street of the city a few years ago. It had remained there, only twelve feet underground, for a matter of twenty-five hundred years or thereabouts. Romulus was here before he built Rome, and thought something of founding a city on this spot, and gave up the idea. He may have been personally acquainted with some of these Phoenicians, whose skeletons we have been examining. In the great zoological gardens we found specimens of all the animals the world produces, I think, including a dromedary, a monkey ornamented with tufts of brilliant blue and carmine hair, a very gorgeous monkey he was, 
a hippopotamus from the Nile, and a sort of tall, long-legged bird with a beak like a powder-horn, and close-fitting wings like the tails of a dress-coat. This fellow stood up with his eyes shut and his shoulders stooped forward a little, and looked as if he had his hands under his coat-tails. Such tranquil stupidity, such supernatural gravity, such self-righteousness, and such ineffable self-complacency as were in the countenance and attitude of that grey-bodied, dark-winged, bald-headed, and preposterously uncomely bird. He was so ungainly, so pimply about the head, so scaly about the legs, yet so serene, so unspeakably satisfied. He was the most comical-looking creature that can be imagined. It was good to hear Dan and the doctor laugh. Such natural and such enjoyable laughter had not been heard among our excursionists since our ship sailed away from America. This bird was a godsend to us, and I should be an ingrate if I forgot to make honorable mention of him in these pages. Ours was a pleasure excursion, therefore we stayed with that bird an hour and made the most of him. We stirred him up occasionally, but he only unclosed an eye and slowly closed it again, abating no jot of his stately piety of demeanor or his tremendous seriousness. He only seemed to say, "'Defile not heaven's anointed with unsanctified hands.' We did not know his name, and so we called him the Pilgrim. Dan said, all he wants now is a Plymouth collection." The boon companion of the colossal elephant was a common cat. This cat had a fashion of climbing up the elephant's hind legs and roosting on his back. She would sit up there, with her paws curved under her breast, and sleep in the sun half the afternoon. It used to annoy the elephant at first, and he would reach up and take her down, but she would go aft and climb up again. She persisted until she finally conquered the elephant's prejudices, and now they were inseparable friends. The cat plays about her comrade's forefeet or his trunk often, until dogs approach, and then she goes aloft out of danger. The elephant has annihilated several dogs lately that pressed his companion too closely. We hired a sailboat and a guide, and made an excursion to one of the small islands in the harbor to visit the Castle Dief. This ancient fortress has a melancholy history. It has been used as a prison for political offenders for two or three hundred years, and its dungeon walls are scarred with the rudely carved names of many and many a captive who fretted his life away here, and left no record of himself but these sad epitaphs wrought with his own hands. How thick the names were! and their long-departed owners seemed to throng the gloomy cells and corridors where their phantom shapes. We loitered through dungeon after dungeon, away down into the living rock below the level of the sea, it seemed. Names everywhere, some plebeian, some noble, some even princely. Plebeian, prince, and noble had one solicitude in common. They would not be forgotten. They could suffer solitude, inactivity, and the horrors of a silence that no sound ever disturbed, but they could not bear the thought of being utterly forgotten by the world. Hence the carved names. In one cell, where a little light penetrated, a man had lived twenty-seven years without seeing the face of a human being, lived in filth and wretchedness, with no companionship but his own thoughts, and they were sorrowful enough and hopeless enough, no doubt. Whatever his jailers considered that he needed was conveyed to his cell by night, through a wicket. 
This man carved the walls of his prison-house from floor to roof with all manner of figures of men and animals grouped in intricate designs. He had toiled there year after year at his self-appointed task, while infants grew to boyhood, to vigorous youth, idled through school and college, acquired a profession, claimed man's mature estate, married, and looked back to infancy as to a thing of some vague ancient time almost. But who shall tell how many ages it seemed to this prisoner? With the one time flew sometimes, with the other never. It crawled always. To the one nights spent in dancing had seemed made of minutes instead of hours. To the other those self-same nights had been like all other nights of dungeon life, and seemed made of slow, dragging weeks instead of hours and minutes. One prisoner of fifteen years had scratched verses upon his walls, and brief prose sentences, brief but full of pathos. These spoke not of himself and his hard estate, but only of the shrine where his spirit fled the prison to worship, of home and the idols that were templed there. He never lived to see them. The walls of these dungeons are as thick as some bedchambers at home, and are wide fifteen feet. We saw the damp, dismal cells in which two of Dumas's heroes passed their confinement, heroes of Monte Cristo. It was here that the brave Abbe wrote a book with his own blood, with a pen made of a piece of iron hoop, and by the light of a lamp made out of shreds of cloth soaked in grease obtained from his food, and then dug through the thick wall with some trifling instrument which he wrought himself out of a stray piece of iron or table-cutlery, and freed Dante from his chains. It was a pity that so many weeks of dreary labor should have come to naught at last. They showed us the noisome cell where the celebrated Iron Mask, that ill-starred brother of a hard-hearted king of France, was confined for a season, before he was sent to hide the strange mystery of his life from the curious in the dungeon of Saint-Marguerite. The place had a far greater interest for us than it could have had if we had known beyond all question who the Iron Mask was, and what his history had been, and why this most unusual punishment had been meted out to him. Mystery! That was the charm! That speechless tongue, those prisoned features, that heart so freighted with unspoken troubles, and that breast so oppressed with its piteous secret, had been here. These dank walls had known the man whose dolorous story is a sealed book forever. There was a fascination in the spot. End of chapter 11